Our text is in Matthew 6. It is Matthew 6, and so it's kind of long. But I won't have to reread a lot of this during the sermon, so please try to pay attention as we're reading now. Matthew chapter 6. Take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount. And we ask you to open our minds, allow us to focus on this word, to focus and have your Holy Spirit open our eyes and ears so that we would hear and obey. We give you thanks for this and for all of your many gifts to us. In Christ's name, amen. So this is the third of four messages on the Sermon on the Mount. And the series is entitled, The Greatest Sermon, The Greatest Sermon Preached, Preached by Jesus. The two messages before this, the last two weeks, were both related to purpose. The first was the purpose of man, and the second was the purpose of law. And so the first message Jesus presented these objective standards. We know them as the Beatitudes. These are objective standards by which God measures us as people. They are standards that describe our character and our conduct. And then the eighth is like the super Beatitude, and that is a consequence of having a character and conduct of which God approves, and that means you're going to be persecuted. And not only should you not fear that, you should rejoice in it because you have been counted worthy by God of to have a high enough character and conduct to have him have you be the body of Christ on this earth such that unbelievers want to punish you for it. The second message was on affirmation of the law and correction of aspects of the law that were misunderstood in Christ's day, uh, perhaps intentionally even. And so here he raised the law to a level that the, even the Pharisees and the scribes refused to. They wanted to lower the bar to make it attainable for them, and yet Jesus raised that bar way back up to where it belonged, meaning none of you can accomplish this. And so he was telling you, only I will accomplish this on your behalf. So now, that first part, all of chapter 5, was fairly clear to me when I had the idea for this series a while back. And these next two, I could see that they broke evenly between chapter 6 and 7, but it wasn't clear to me what the internal structure of each would be. Last week, I told you that the titles for the next two messages would be Faith for Living and Faith for Dying, and yet 
as early as Monday, I realized that that really wasn't what they were going to be because that didn't reflect what I needed to preach on because it didn't reflect the text properly. And so they are now called roots of faith and fruits of faith. I think that's much, much more consistent with what's in chapters 6 and 7. Hebrews 11.1 1 says what? It gives us this standard of faith, faith, this definition. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And this is a beautiful definition of faith. And it's in this chapter, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is weaning us away from living by sight. His hearers are so accustomed to living by sight. That's what the Pharisees and scribes had been doing for a long, long time. And so it's what everyone was comfortable with, it's, and it's how they lived. It's, they were very outward-oriented. We know not all were, though, because there were miraculous things that occurred, like when Jesus was born. And we have these elderly people, this man and woman, come to the temple and see this and proclaim, this is now what's happened. These people were unique. These people didn't fall victim to what the Pharisees and the scribes taught. They knew the truth. They knew that you must live by faith. You must live in the spirit and not what you're seeing in the material world. That's not what's most real. What's most real is God in the heavens, penetrating into the earth and influencing and directing our lives. Faith is central to accomplishing anything that you as a Christian want to accomplish on this earth. Now, I want to introduce a picture and then uh, refer to it later. Um, you may have seen this, you may not, but you, in the movie Castaway, where the castaway is in the early weeks and he hasn't yet found fire, his poor little flashlight has burned out and now he has no light at night. He's attempting to create a fire and so he has all of this coconut uh, shreddings that he piles up into a big pile and then he's found this flinty rock and he's attempting to get sparks going. And so let's leave it at that. He's, he's frustrated. You continually see his hopes dashed trying to get this fire going, but it hasn't lit yet. Long ago, uh, before Dominion was formed, Phil was the pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church. And we would have these book discussions and uh, several of us men would get together for these book discussions, and there was one man by the name of Carl Shoemaker. And I liked Carl. I think a lot of us liked Carl. He was very easy to get along with, very neat guy. And he has since moved back to New Hampshire long ago. But I remember after one of the meetings, he and I exchanged some emails, and we were lamenting the fact that we just can't seem to be able to talk with Phil. I mean, he's just here... And we're all way down here. And his response was that we are all spiritual paupers in light of Phil, Pastor Kaiser. And I thought, wow, what a great way of viewing it. That's kind of how I think all of us felt at the time and still do. But, but I've since come to understand that that's probably not the best term to describe, not technically the best term. I believe what we were were theological paupers. We didn't know the Bible like Phil did. We didn't know how to apply it to life like, like he did. And the reason I make this, uh, this distinction now is not in any way related to Phil, but it is related to other people who are theological giants. But 
I think they are more like spiritual paupers. They know a lot about the Bible. The Pharisees and the scribes in Christ's day knew a lot about the Bible. They weren't necessarily applying it all correctly, but they had no spiritual life. And some of the people that you see that really do know theology fairly well have no spiritual life. So I view them as spiritual puppers. And so that's not what you want to be, right? You don't want to gain one to sacrifice the other. You want to do both. You want to be both. You want to be theologically astute and spiritually alive. <clears throat> chapter 6, as compared to chapter 7, is all about the inwardness of our faith. And that's where you see a clear distinction between the two between the two chapters. And so what we're going to talk about today is all about the inwardness of faith. Jesus is instructing his disciples in what it means to have true faith, not a fake faith. Christians are said, in theological terms, to improve upon their baptism. And so what on earth could that mean, that a Christian is to improve upon their baptism? Well, what it means is that their baptism has been like a promise, a promise to God that they will live for him. And so to improve upon your baptism is to follow in the path of what it is that your baptism has declared you to be, a child of God. And so to improve upon your baptism means to build upon that foundation that you are a child of God and you will honor God as your father. You'll be obedient to him. Now to get back to my analogy. So you have this man on the beach, he's attempting to get this fire started, and he's got this stuff all there, and he's got these sparks flying, and then you see this smoldering, smoldering. And then in the very next scene, a second later, you see a tremendous bonfire. And you see this man leaping and singing and dancing all around that fire because he is overjoyed that he now has this fire. It could do many, many things for him, and he is ecstatic. And he just keeps building that fire bigger and bigger and bigger. And now the reason I ask you this, the reason I use this illustration is this. If you're a Christian, and if as a Christian you have a fire within you, you have life within you, unlike unbelievers who have no life in them, but you have life in you. And let's describe that life as a fire. Is it really a fire? Or is it a dull ember? And if it is not a fire, why is it not a fire? That's not God's fault. You can't blame God for that. I know we're reformed. We know God is sovereign. Yet you can't blame him for your own shortcomings as a Christian. You must want to have a fire in you to ever achieve the fire. That castaway worked and worked and worked at getting that fire going. And when he got it going, he kept it going. It was important to him. And so is our spiritual fire within us as important to us as that fire was for that castaway? It ought to be. We really do want, should want to live in that fire, have that fire going. And we ought not be complacent about this. This is important. This is very important. Matthew 6 is about getting that fire going. And Matthew 7 then is about using it for the benefit of God's kingdom. These fires are meant to be a blessing to others. Our fires 
are meant to be a blessing to others. But ultimately, it's God that we want to please with this fire. That should be our aim. Our aim is not pleasing ourselves, not pleasing others, our family, our pastor, nothing. It should be to please God. They're meant to be a blessing to others, but they're meant to bring pleasure to God. Now, <clears throat> I've had weeks to plan these, and so I should be further along, but I'm not. Um, and so as the week went by, and Tabitha's out in California visiting with our very first granddaughter, with, with our daughter, and I'm supposed to be being productive, and I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm reading, I'm reflecting on this text, but I'm not producing anything. And part of it was that I just couldn't see how to break chapter 6 up into its constituent parts. There are like eight different sections, or more, really, ten if you, if you split them all apart. But so... As late as Friday night, I'm wrestling over this because I've gotten it from these like 10 pieces down to where they're grouped. But the oddest thing, let me tell you the oddest thing that I couldn't deal with, and it is the Lord's Prayer. It's what we read earlier. It's what I just read in my reading because it comes in at an odd spot. And so when you read this and you reflect on it and you meditate on it, ask yourself, why is Jesus introducing the Lord's Prayer here? At first, it makes sense. Well, he's talking about prayer, right? I mean, he introduces this faulty way of viewing prayer. But what I found was this, and I'm going to give you the structure. This is the structure, and this is what happened with the Lord's Prayer. First, you can see that he uh, talks about the uh, good deeds, doing good deeds before people, and yet he wants you to do them secretly. Uh, prayer, praying in public versus praying in your prayer closet. Then he introduces the Lord's Prayer. It's on the topic of prayer. makes sense. Then he brings up fasting. And again, it's about doing fasting without others knowing that you're doing it. So obviously, there are these four parts, and the Lord's Prayer is here, and these three belong together. You know, the good deeds, the prayer, the fasting. So good. Let's group them together. And so we've got these good deeds, this prayer, and this fasting. And what I call that is this is fake faith versus real faith. And we'll get into more of that later, but that's just the first one. Now, the next one that includes the Lord's Prayer and what comes immediately after the fasting, and this is why it fooled me, because the Lord's Prayer was a little bit earlier, but it concerns the supremacy of the spiritual world over the material world. And so Jesus introduced the Lord's Prayer, and in the Lord's Prayer, and we'll get to it here in a bit, but it's all about the spiritual world. And then the last part is the last, like, 11 verses. And th these are uh, warnings of worldly seduction. So, verses 1 through 8 and 16 to 18, fake faith versus real faith. Verses 9 to 15 and 19 to 23, the supremacy of the spiritual world. And 24 to 34, warnings of worldly seduction. So I see there being these three major sections. I want to give you a word picture or a picture, illustration, that can have you quickly seize upon these three different topics. Imagine that you're adrift in the ocean. It's you. It's you in the great blue sea. And you've just wrecked your plane. You're not Josh. I won't say that that was Josh that wrecked his plane. But you wrecked your poor plane. You're out there floating in the great big ocean. And you've got flotsam around you, jetsam around you. And so... 
you're clinging to something for dear life and you're praying desperately right i mean we can get we can get very few people to come to our prayer meetings but if you're in the middle of the ocean you're praying to god you don't need a prayer meeting to declare yourself in prayer with the lord so you're praying you're praying for rescue you're praying for salvation you're praying that those big waves don't keep hitting you and drowning you what happens if this now this is you imagine you're out there in the ocean you're all by your lonesome and you're praying now we know that God doesn't answer prayers typically by this booming voice from heaven. He can if he wants, but it's not typically how we have our prayers answered. But suddenly, you think of something. It appears to come from your own head, but God put it there. God says, do this. So you're clinging to this thing that you think is reasonably safe to hang on to, that it will keep you afloat until you're rescued. And yet what God's voice is telling you is, no, you have to let that go. You need to cling to that instead. And he points to something else. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I've got this. I don't have that. But yet in faith, you have to obey God. You have to let go of this. You have to grab onto that. Then what God tells you as you continue to pray is he says, don't let go. You're going to find other things now that you think are going to be better than this. But I'm telling you, this is what you need to hang on to. So the reason that I think this image works is this. In this first section, fake faith versus real faith, Jesus has to pry our hands off of what we are most comfortable with in living our Christian lives. And we don't like that. That's not how we've always done it. That's not how we're comfortable doing it. We want to do it like we do it. But yet the word is clearly telling you you should do it differently and yet you're reluctant to obey because it just makes you uncomfortable. So Jesus has to pry your hands off of this thing that you would rather hold on to and then put your hands onto what is there, and that's the Lord's Prayer, and we'll get to that. Then he warns you, don't let go. I pried you off this, I attached you to that. Now, all I want you to do is hang on for dear life. So, we have three sections, each is roughly the same in size, I don't know if it'll take the same time, but we'll see. So fake faith versus real faith. Obviously, these are very similar to one another. We're talking about these good deeds, the alms, the charitable deeds, the prayer, the, this public prayer, and the fasting. So charitable deeds, uh, historically, this can be referred to as almsgiving. In other words, it's not just money. It's really yourself. You're, you're giving yourself in helping others. You're giving of your time, you're giving of your income, and you're out there. You're out there to help people. This is a wonderful thing, and this is historically how Christians have don donated their time and money back to helping the needy. And then prayer, and this is kind of an aspect of prayer that I don't think we're uh, comfortable with. We don't see a lot of this today, but Jesus in Luke 18 spoke of parable of there being these two men the Pharisee who's standing at the temple praying, oh God, thank you that I'm me and that I'm not this man, this tax collector. And then the tax collector won't even look up and he's praying, God, forgive me. I'm a wicked sinner. And then Jesus says that this man went home justified, whereas the Pharisee, he doesn't need God. He's self-righteous. These are prayers that are done in public and obviously they were occurring in his time. And these are men 
that in their prayer are really just proudly thanking God. They think they're doing the right thing, but they're really proclaiming how wonderful they are in their prayer. Fasting, obviously with fasting, you're wanting to abstain from the flesh in order to have your spirit subdue your flesh. And this Pharisee again said, I fast twice a week. So fasting can be abused in this way, just as the monks in the Middle Ages would abuse the body, attempting to subject it to these privations. But yet, it must be the spirit that's doing this. We can't just deprive our flesh and not have the spirit growing through it. We're not going to earn our way into God's favor in that way. We must be strengthening our spirit, so it must be our spirit that's in control of our flesh. That's why people fast. And if you don't fast, and I know we live in a culture in which it's, it's uh, not commonly practiced, but if you are facing spiritual dilemmas, spiritual difficulties, if you fall into weakness and sin and temptation, you must fast to think that you can overcome this. And it's, of course, not God that overcomes it. It, it. It's not you that overcomes it. It's God as he gives you strength. But you don't overcome it in your flesh. It must be your spirit that's brought into and engaged in the war against your flesh. And fasting is a powerful weapon to that end. And so you really want to do that. So Jesus is correcting misunderstandings of each of these three tenets of the basic disciplines of the Christian faith. He instructs his disciples not to seek glory from men. Each of them uses very similar phrasing. In verse 2, when being seen doing good deeds, he says, it's because they may have then the glory of men. In 5, when they're praying on the street corners, it's that they may be seen of men. In verse 16, when they're fasting, they disfigure their faces and draw attention to themselves, that they may appear to be seen fasting. And so what is the way that Jesus tells us to deal with this concerning each of these, these wrong ways? He says this one statement, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And the Greek is clear here. What, what Jesus is saying is they have no reward from God for what they're doing. All they want is man's praise, and that's potentially all they're getting because God is giving them nothing, no recognition, positive from what they're doing. So Jesus advocates secrecy, privacy in each of these. He says, your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, it's not just about not being seen, because we all know that sometimes your good deeds are seen. Your fasting may be found out. No, that's okay. I don't want to eat. It makes it kind of obvious. You don't draw attention to it, but you are not drawing attention to yourself. And you're attempting to keep this under wraps unknown by others. And God, who sees in secret, will one day reward you openly. Perhaps, I'm old now, and so a lot of my stories might not resonate with you because you're not old. But there was this show called America's Funniest Videos, and there was one skit where probably the dad is filming his wife on the phone with a friend and she's all animated and talking and she keeps walking around and yet her toddler who wants her attention is following her starts wailing and screaming throwing himself down and then the mom without even recognizing the toddler just knowing there's this distraction that's preventing me from will walk away 
walk over several feet away and, and continue talking. And then the kid, not missing a cue, stops crying, jumps up, sees mom's gone, walks over to where mom is, and as soon as he thinks he gets her attention by pulling on her, he throws himself down and starts wailing and crying. He does this several times. It's hilarious. And the mom is oblivious. You know moms. I mean, you know moms. You, you deal with that, right? I mean, you can be oblivious. And that is what these Pharisees are doing. They're out there, and they're doing all this stuff. Look at me. Look at me. Aren't I wonderful? And God is just, no, you're not wonderful at all. I am not going to reward you one bit relative to what it is that you're doing. Many people are out in public wanting to see and be seen. That's a phrase in our culture. This is what the young up-and-coming do, the connected people, the prestigious people, the beautiful people. They're going to be out there at the latest club, the latest restaurant. They want to see and be seen. So they're not living for God. They're living for themselves. Now, many of them probably aren't even pretending to live for God. They hate God, and they tell you that. But those of us that know God, that love God, that want to live for God, have to recognize that there is a temptation in all of our hearts to want to be seen, to want to be recognized, want to be made the center of attention. We all aspire, perhaps in some ways, secretively, to this celebrity life that we will never have, that, that we regret not having. We're sad about it. So Jesus gives us very practical direction in how to deal with this. First, he said, and, and I, I, I assume that this is real, the, the commentaries I read vacillated. They said, maybe it's real, maybe it's not, but it's about sounding a trumpet. Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Perhaps this was really done. People, it was so commonly practiced that you're doing these good deeds, that when you're doing the good deeds, in order to kind of get the people that want good deeds done unto them to come, you kind of like ring the bell. You know, I'm here to do the good deeds. Bing, bing, bing. But Jesus said, instead of doing that, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So in other words, you are being very secretive about this. You're not even writing it in your plan or putting it in your schedule such that people will innocently look it up. Because sometimes we might think, oh, well, I won't broadcast it, but I'll just let it slip. And yet there goes your treasure. There goes your recognition from the Father because he knows your heart. He knows you're doing it intentionally. Concerning prayers, Jesus said, hypocrites, they love to pray standing in the synagogues, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, pray to your Father in secret, and he that sees in secret will one day reward you openly. Fasting, they would make themselves appear to be fasting, obviously, not attempting to hide it at all, and yet he said, don't be like them, anoint your head, wash your face, do not appear to be fasting. This I find especially interesting because I've had discussions with people and they insist that God in no way advocates deception. But I believe this clearly is Christ advocating deception. He says, you're fasting, but you don't want people to know, and so this is what I'm encouraging you to do. You're not going to lie about it if asked, but you're also not trying to make it easy for people to guess. Proverbs 27, verse 2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. This is really, really good wisdom. I mean, Proverbs is obviously filled with good wisdom, but sometimes you have a proverb just really jump off the page, 
and bite you in the rear end. And this one is one that I really like because I know my weaknesses, I know my failings. Did you know that in America, historically, in political contests, that the candidate would not ever want that office? They would never go out and stump for it, saying, make me president, make me senator. It always had to be others because this was a culture that honored the Bible. This was a culture that knew Proverbs 27, verse 2. And yet that time has passed. So nowadays, all of the politicians are always out there trumpeting what it is that they're doing, not even with their own money, but with other people's money, OPM. And so they'll be out at all these public events, cutting the ribbons and saying, we're dedicating this building to that or that. That's today. Now, we're so very different from a biblical culture. And so if you know Christians in government, it's interesting, you know, I mean, are they really abiding by the Bible in even doing what it is that God would have us to do or not doing what God would not have us to do? Living how we, we are to live? The problem is this, though. When you adopt 27.2, let another man praise you and not your own mouth, other people don't praise you nearly enough. <laughs> really. They don't even notice. And at first you think, oh... It, it, and it's like the child, you know? <laughs> so you, you just do it without thinking. You're just a spoiled brat that wants attention. And you don't see this temptation. It's, it's, it's just a part of you. And so then you have to overcome that. You have to get past that. There is another proverb then, though, that comes into play. Okay, let's say that you're abiding by this. You're not allowing your own mouth to praise you. But now this. Proverbs 20, verse 19. Do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. So see, you've stopped praising yourself, and now other people have stopped praising you. But there's this one guy. He's such a wonderful person. He's always telling me I'm doing a good job. You see, that's the sycophant. They're the ones that's just always whispering sweet nothings in your ear. Oh, I love you. I, I support you. So see, you have to, and this doesn't even say don't listen to them. This says do not associate with them because God knows us. God knows how weak we are, how selfish and self-centered we are. You have to have your intellect identify people such as this and then cut them out of your life because they're not being truthful. They're not being honest. They just want to have an influence upon you, and they know that if they whisper sweet nothings in your ear, they'll gain that influence. I, re I remember listening to a documentary about Woodrow Wilson, and he, from, it was a very detailed documentary, and it was written by someone who loved Woodrow Wilson, but you could tell that he was a man that gave in to flattery. Oh, it was sad. When you see many of the things that he did in response to being elevated to this godlike status in America, some say that it was Woodrow Wilson, not FDR, that really made the presidency was it, what, it, what it is with the League of Nations and World War I and all that. So, now the sermon title today is called The Roots of Faith, and I haven't really discussed why I have called it that. The first message on the Beatitudes was about objective measures. Jesus wasn't encouraging you to go be like this. He was just declaring, this is the standard. This is the way in which God evaluates human character and conduct. In the second 
Jesus corrected misconceptions of the law and corrected things. But now, he has begun, he begins with eliminating misconceptions and getting you back on track, but he has begun to instruct us in character and conduct. And chapter 6 is about character. And chapter 7 is about conduct. These are the things that he declared in the first seven Beatitudes as God's standard. And now he's sharing with us how this can be done. In the uh, initial picture, when I gave you the three topics and I described drowning out in the ocean or potentially drowning, you're, you're, you're afraid of that. You're trying to save yourself. And Jesus had to pry you off of that bad thing, that false theology, in order to get you attached to the good theology. That is one analogy. That's one metaphor. But I want to introduce another one that does correlate with roots of faith and fruits of faith. And that is, Jesus has to clear the ground. The ground is cluttered. Lots of weeds growing up in this plot of ground here. And so he's cleared that ground. He's brought these new disciple plants that he's done, and he's plopped them down there, and now he's nurturing them, and he's training them. This is what you do. I've cleared the ground for you. I've described to you what true godly character and conduct is. I've told you what the law truly is and the value of it, how it's going to transform your world if only you would honor it. And this is now what I want you to do. So today's message, Matthew 6, is about nurturing that faith, about getting roots going down into the ground. It's about character. The second point is supremacy of the spiritual world. And so we turn to the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to go through this quickly. I mean, obviously, the Lord's Prayer deserves a whole lot more, many sermons. And here I'm giving it just a few minutes. But there are five points that I want to cover quickly in the Lord's Prayer, and they cover verses 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Verse 9, God is holy and in heaven. And so right away, we're anchored in heaven with God. We begin in heaven with God. Verse 10, God reigns supreme from heaven. But his rule does extend into the earth, and it penetrates into the earth, and we want it to do so. Verse 11, God provides for our daily needs here, and we should ask for him to do so. But we know that he does. Jesus said that he does. Yet, we are to ask him, even though we know he will. Why? Because we don't want to presume upon God. We want to live a life of thankfulness. And so he commands us to ask for our daily bread. Verse 12, God forgives us, and he expects us to forgive others. It's required. Verse 13, God protects us from temptation. He rescues us from Satan, and he reigns supreme. That was also in verse 10. And so we begin with a statement saying that God reigns supreme from heaven, and we end with a statement saying God reigns supreme from heaven. This is, in a couple minutes, what the Lord's Prayer is all about. And you could see that it's anchored in heaven with God, and it talks about our allegiance to him, our dependence on him. It anchors us in the spiritual world, and we have to admit our dependence on God. It makes us humble. It, make, it shows our neediness. Then he goes back to pick up what he'd said about forgiveness and insists that we must forgive others if we expect to be forgiven. And last time I talked about how hard-hearted people are not going to heaven. And so if you know a hard-hearted person who you believe or they claim to be a Christian, 
it's inconsistent with what the Bible teaches. And so hard-hearted people really ought to examine that hard heart and try to understand why it is that God would ever let them in heaven if they are being so hard-hearted towards others on this earth. Because the Bible clearly says, no, that's not going to happen. And we know, based on what Jesus said, is that there will be people come up to him after they've left this earth in death and expect to get into heaven. And what is it that he will say? Depart from me, you wicked. I never knew you. That's what Jesus is going to tell these people. Now, I encourage you to examine your hearts to determine whether you believe yourself to be in the faith. The issue is this. People that are going to be told that by Christ one day in heaven probably would never do that. I encourage you all to do that. You all should do that. But if there are a couple hard hearts out here, they're thinking, I don't need to do that. Me and Jesus are like this, and he's letting me in. So see, it's that hard heart that manifests itself in such arrogance, in such foolishness. The next verse, uh, 22, uh, we skip ahead past the fasting. The eyes are said to be windows into the soul. That's what we hear in our culture, right? And I believe that is true. Your eyes are windows into your soul. And when you look into other people's eyes, they can be window into their soul. Proverbs 30, verse 17, I want to read this. This is a just one verse, but it's kind of long. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. Now, I don't think that's literal, but I think it is a fairly horrific, metaphorical way of viewing the arrogance of this young man. That is metaphorically, figuratively speaking, what will happen to that man because he treats his parents with contempt, such as he does. In the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, I was listening to it a couple weeks ago on, on our treks through California, and there is this one section, when I read it, I remember vividly, and I listened to it again. There is uh, this one researcher, I believe his name is Gottman, I think it's John Gottman, but he runs a marriage lab at this university or, or think tank. And he has his staff bring these couples in and he videos them for 30 minutes. They can talk about anything they want to. They just have to carry on a 30 minute conversation. And yet his staff has learned through training how to ferret out 18 different things that pass across people's faces when they communicate with one another. Whether I'm angry at what you just said, whether I'm uh, uh, laughing, I find what you just said humorous, but they have these 18 attributes. But they said, of the 18, there are four that are really, really more critical than the others. And the reason, the purpose for their study is that they're trying to determine if this couple will be together 10 years from now, or, with, or if in the interim they'll break up. And they said that there is one of the 18 attributes that is huge. If you see this attribute on film, they're going to break up. It's almost inevitable. It's significant correlation with breakups. It's contempt. If the, if the woman has contempt for the man or the man has contempt for the woman, the researchers, just after they've evaluated it, they say, uh-oh, it's over. They don't know it, but their relationship is, is over. Let me read an excerpt from this. 
I think it gives you a little more insight into what's going on. These are referred to as microfacial expressions. And what this uh, Gottman has done is he's gone over all the world and studied facial expressions all over the world. And this microfacial expression, what crosses the instant you feel this anger or contempt or you're being critical or whatever, it's the same in all cultures. And so our countenance is something that God has designed that pervades all cultures. It's all the same. Now, we can, mannerisms that are different, such as the way the Indians have that weird wobble of the head that I can never figure out what they mean. Yes. Yes. No. No. But what do you do with that? I mean, you just can't make sense of it. But with these microfacial expressions, they are directly wired into your heart and into your minds. And they tell people who are trained to detect them what you really think. I mean, they, these people that are trained in this have used them to determine whether someone is lying about a crime that they, they say they never saw or didn't commit. I mean, it's very helpful. Let me read this excerpt. You would think that criticism would be the worst, Gottman says, because criticism is a global condemnation of a person's character. Yet contempt is qualitatively different from criticism. With criticism, I might say to my wife, you never listen. You are really selfish and insensitive. Well, she's going to respond defensively to that. That's not very good for our problem-solving and interaction. But if I speak from a superior plane, that's far more damaging. And contempt is any statement made from a higher level. A lot of the time, it's an insult. It's trying to put that person on a lower plane than you. It's hierarchical. Gottman has found that contempt is closely correlated to disgust, and both are about completely rejecting and excluding someone from the community. The big gender difference with negative emotions, and now this I just, I, I had to keep reading this because this is really interesting. The big gender difference with negative emotions is that women are more critical and men are more likely to stonewall. We find that women start talking about a problem, the men get irritated and turn away, and the women get more critical, and it becomes a vicious circle. But there isn't any gender difference when it comes to contempt. Not at all. Contempt is special. If you can measure contempt, then all of a sudden you don't need to know every detail of the couple's relationship. Jesus said in this text that a am still on in verse 22. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. And if your eye is bad, then darkness is in you, and great is that darkness. And the reason I bring up this is that you do have a countenance. And if, if people can look at that countenance, and through these microfacial expressions they're trained to see, see all of this coming out of your soul then it's no stretch to know that God does. God knows everything about you. He knows every nuance of your character. That's why the Beatitudes are so critical to us to understand. These are the characters and the conducts that God truly honors and rewards. You're not going to fool him. So why bother? Why play at religion? There's no point to it. The third point is the warning of the worldly seduction, and this is that last section uh, beginning at, you could begin it at either verse 24 or 25. I begin it at verse 24 with the no one serving two masters as included in the worry. It might belong to the previous one. 
But do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or what you will put on. Eating and drinking and clothing, wearing. I used that picture earlier of being lost at sea, Jesus prying our hands off and then attaching us to what we need to hang on to and then telling us, don't let go. These are the things that we let go for. These are why we would let go of what God has attached us to. And you might think, how could anyone possibly trade their faith for any of these things? And yet, really, it's quite common. Because, see, you're not necessarily trading your faith for it for all time. It's just here and there, here and there. And before soon, it adds up. And now you're trading it quite freely. Now, eat, drink, wear. We all need to eat. We all need to drink. We all need to wear clothes, most all of us. So this is important. Now, in Christ's day, this, many people were probably poor, more, certainly more than in modern America. And so you can think that um, people might worry about what they eat, what they drink. Am I going to eat today? What am I going to eat today? I shared with you that story about that young Indian boy who had always been hungry. And then suddenly he gets adopted, sent to Australia, and he has all this food. It's just going from one world to another. And he said that when he grew up in India, there were so many children like him. This was in the 80s. I mean, there were so many that never got enough food. They didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. I don't think that's what we're talking about. That's not what Jesus has in mind, is these poverty-stricken people that can only... This is different. Let me broaden these. I think, I think it's reasonable to broaden these to some degree. Clothing, we can map to prestige. Don't we use clothing as a means of measuring prestige in our culture? When you see it on the news, you can't help it. I, I hate reading these articles, but every time I click up a new browser with my work computer, I get the news. I get this big splash news page and all these little articles, and your mind is, your, your eyes are drawn to this. And, and invariably, there's some social thing where some woman has worn this or that gown to this or that event, and it's like, what do I care? But apparently, some people do. You know, how could they do this? How could she wear that? Um, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that as being important, but it is to people. And so they talk about it, they write about it, there's a huge dedication to it. And so prestige, though, can relate to many things. You now, not only do you want nice clothes, you want the bigger house, you want the newer car, you want uh, the better job. You're, pretty soon you're keeping up with the Joneses. And there's a lot to worry about at keeping up with the Joneses, because if you pass them, now you've got the Smiths. And you've got others on your tail. So when you join this rat race for prestige, it's easy to see that it all becomes very worrisome. And I believe this is what Jesus is speaking to. It's not just worry about where my next meal is coming from. It's, it's that I'm caught up in this culture, and I'm a part of it. And he's warning us away from that. Don't, don't be obsessed with that. Remember the parable that Jesus tells of the man that had this bumper crop and then he's going to tear down his barns and build bigger barns. And he says, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. So God can upend our uh, plans in a heartbeat. So we must always have God in mind when we're making our plans. Another is concerning, and that one really would be more related to eating because see, what is eating associated with? Security. 
I remember reading a, a fictional story long ago and, and a children that were starved. I don't know if anybody read V.C. Andrews, Flowers in the Attic, but it was about these children that were born to this woman. She ended up moving back home and she's hiding her children because her father had forbade her to marry and he doesn't know she has children. And these children are being starved to death by their very own mother. It's a sad story. It's fictional. So. But after they've escaped from the attic and after they've gone on to live their own lives, it's 20, 30 years later, and yet the woman, the young girl that was trapped in the attic now still keeps food everywhere in her house. She's scared to death of going without food because she's been in want. So that's where her security is coming from. Historically, people got fat because they could. There were very few people that could. And so if you had the wealth, you got the fat. And that made you very, very visible to everybody. Not that there's just more flesh, but it's just so few people are fat like you. You're very wealthy, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm fat because I want to show you that I'm wealthy. So historically, fatness was this sign of God's promise in your life. God is blessing you tremendously. Drinking, obviously, can be associated with pleasure. People start living for the weekend, Friday, Saturday, we're going out drinking, we're going out carousing, we're going out having fun, or pleasure in terms of uh, we just want to have fun, living for pleasure. So you could see that these things, eating and drinking and having clothing, can really cover our life spectrum, and we ourselves. We might not think we relate to not having food or water or the right clothes, but we can certainly relate to all those things. And those are things that we tend to worry about in our culture. We are prone to this. We can fall victim to this, and we are warned against doing so. And what is it that Jesus tells us to do? What is the antidote to maintaining the perspective that God wants us to have? It's in verse 33. This is probably the most important verse in this whole chapter. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And see, the thing is this, that when you're seeking God's kingdom... When God adds these other things to you, they're always in proportion to your need. They're not going to unbalance you. He, he doesn't intend to give you these things to cause you grief. If you suddenly get a lot of money, it can ruin you. It's, it ruins many people. Many of these people that become fabulously wealthy overnight are in poverty five, ten years later. They've blown through all that money, and now they're in debt. They didn't have the capacity to constrain themselves and live within their means before they got all the money from the lottery, and they didn't have it while they had the money from the lottery. They've spent it all. Now, we here that listen to sermons, I believe it's too easy for us to naively assume because we understand these words, because we intellectually assent to these words, we spiritually admire these words, we just automatically absolve ourselves of critical thinking relative to these words. We think we're okay. And that's not the case. We must take these words and critically apply them to ourselves, not to others, to ourselves. Am I unbalanced? Am I not making God the center of my life? Am I not allowing Him to add these things back in to me? Or am I worrying about them? Am I making them the most important thing in my life? Because we do this, and then we just 
absolve ourselves of guilt related to it because we're believers, we're reformed, we know God is sovereign. And so we can, in a sense, blame God for whatever circumstances we're in in which we're not obeying Him. We're not taking advantage of the word preached. So I encourage you not to absolve yourself of being critical in evaluating your life right now at this moment. And especially as we get to next week, we have another opportunity to do that very same thing. We're here for a few hours. It's easy to act spiritual for a few hours, but God is with you 168 hours a week. So he knows whether you're being spiritual or not. You won't grow in your service to God by merely attending worship services. You have to worship God every day, every day of the week. You have to dedicate yourself to him. You must improve upon your faith. Build it up. Build upon it. God gave you this flame. You want to make it bigger. You want to pour the fuel on it. You want to keep it burning. You want to, next week we'll talk about the uses of that in other people's lives, in God's kingdom. But he needs you to be effective in this way first because you can, before you can be helpful in other people's lives. And I'm not saying you're not, honestly. I mean, I think we have a great church a very proactive church at loving on one another. And I just encourage you, though, don't coast. You want to evaluate yourself critically during this time. Today's message was on inwardness. We talked about these good deeds, the prayers, the fastings. Um, and next week, we'll talk about how this inward strength, how this inward fire ends up benefiting God's people, benefiting God's church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the words of Christ. We thank you for this uh, tremendous sermon that must penetrate to our hearts and yet must go beyond that to affect us, to affect how we think, what we do, what we value. And we pray that it would, that we would live for you, that we would allow you to direct us in what the proportions of these other things should be in terms of eating and drinking and uh, uh, having clothes and having things. We pray, Father, for your wisdom to prevail in this. But we want to make you the most important thing in our lives, and we pray that you would do so. We come to you now and uh, declare you, Lord, to be our God, our Father in heaven. And we want to anchor our souls and our bodies with you in heaven. We ask you to uh, be this for us and to guide us by your Spirit in the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.